All right, let's turn in our Bibles today to Matthew chapter 24. This is known as the closed line of Bible prophecy. At least some call it the closed line of Bible prophecy, where we see a sketch that is further elucidated throughout the New Testament and goes back into the Old Testament, of course, of what would be occurring right before Jesus Christ returns. Well, there's one verse that I like to accent here, and it's verse number 24, where Jesus says, as one of the signs, one of the many signs, that would be apparent right before he returns, is this one here. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive even the very elect. Now, we accent the words, if it were possible, but I want to look at those adjectives, great signs and wonders, and also the adjective, very. Mark 13, verse 22, we have a similar statement. For false Christ and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. A parallel record of Jesus' statement here. In one case, the word deception is used. In the other case, seduction is used. For whatever the reason is, and I don't really know, I am frequently, or at least, uh, well, it's frequently in the last so many months, I'm solicited by a very large cult group that wants me to be at their meetings now. I guess they're holding, going to be holding meetings in New York, upstate New York. They come from South Korea. And if you read through, I mean... There are so many things that line up with the scriptures. Now, of course, I'm not a novice, so I read and think and so on. And uh, I've been contacted by phone, been contacted by email to be at these meetings. We would love to have you be there to bring together unity in the body of Christ, which we heard earlier right here from the pulpit during the song service, which I'm going to mention in my message. But then upon review and a little research, find out that the group has one main belief, that their leader, Mr. Lee, is the one spoken of here in the scriptures who is going to initiate the coming of Christ and further that without compliance to be under his authority, there's going to be nothing but death and destruction. And I mention this because for two reasons. Number one, I have no real reason, no idea why they contact me. My messages go all over the radio. Anyone in the immediate area of the Capital District, plus some in Massachusetts, knows what I believe. I don't know why they're soliciting me. I don't know. But as the saying goes, it's the same old song. Everything seems to line up when you read through their supposed doctrine, except one. That their leader is the one who's called by God to pull it together, and if that doesn't happen, if you're not part of that event, then it's death and destruction. Needless to say, I will not be part of that unity meeting. Two words used in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13. One is deception. The other is seduction. I don't think we need much elucidation on those words. You understand what they mean. You understand what a deception is. And you understand what seduction is. What should concern us is that this is aimed at the elect, those who were truly born again. Now we get into a theological debate, could you lose your salvation or no, and all this stuff. But I'm not going to enter into that. I'm just going to stick with what the text says. 
And it says that deception and seduction, Mark 13, will be so strong that if it were possible, even those who truly know Christ won't much know the difference. Say it to you that way. So I want to just share with you today this unusual title that I borrowed from a book I read many years ago called The God I Don't Believe In. And it's interesting that we have been, the church has been, in a backsliding condition, which the Bible calls apostasy, a defection from the faith, which I said I wasn't going to talk about this subject, and I'm not going to talk about it at length, but for me, there's only one book for me, and it's the Bible. And it seems to me a violation of common sense and logic that you can't fall away from something that you've never had. And the debate rages and the theologians can hack it out. I'm just interested in making sure that I stay straight and make the kingdom. And you that sit here before me, that you stay straight and make the kingdom because the text is clear, not everybody will. I know Jesus and I know Jesus and I know Jesus, but Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 7, then I will say unto them, I never knew you. And that's more important than you saying, you know Jesus, is Jesus saying, yeah, I know you. Welcome into my kingdom, good and faithful servant, and so on. That's what we want. We want to make sure God knows us, not that we proclaim that we know God. But as it says in Titus, but in works, deny him. In our behavior, we deny him. We deny it because we don't bear the fruit of the Spirit. And so we go back into the 19th century. And here's a man, at the time a young man, who, as Christian history records, breaks from the institutional church for good reasons and decides to make the streets of London his pulpit. He coins a phrase to those that went with him and followed him to go after sinners and go after the worst. So they went into the slums of London and all these different places. Their original name was the something revival, something with the word revival in it. I can't remember what it was, but we know them today as the Salvation Army. William Booth saw the problems in the church, and he says, we're going to go out to the streets. We're going to take Jesus to the people. But what's very interesting about William Booth is something that he said near to the end of his life. Some say he was a prophet. I would say certainly what he said was insightful and prophetic. These were his words. William Booth said this, The danger that confronts the coming century, which would be the 20th century, the chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God. Then lastly, number six, heaven without hell. That was uttered, written well over a hundred and so many years ago. And it has come true in prophetic fashion. A commentary on this statement from a church over in England, Loughborough, says that what Booth was saying was this. It would be a distorted Christianity that doesn't believe in the concept of a hell. Secondly, it would be performance-based worship, which I don't care for the word worship, but he's talking about music. Performance-based music lacking any sense of God's presence. A passion for, quote, the praise and worship experience, end quote, without it being, quote, in spirit and in truth. A social gospel proclaimed instead of salvation through Christ's atoning work of the cross. A sociable, impotent church that denies the power of God. Services and platform ministry without any anointing of the Holy Spirit. 
superficial belief with no real deep interior life with God. Minimum requirement Christianity instead of consecrated lives poured out in service. Acceptable cultural trends taking precedence over God's word in the church. This is a modern commentary written this year. Authorities penalizing the church financially, withholding gift, aid, reclamation, and imposing various taxes if the church refuses to marry same-sex couples. This is England now. The church in the UK becoming more and more polarized and less unified over fundamental doctrinal issues and practice. Believers becoming increasingly marginalized in society because of the upholding of scriptural belief. That's one author's commentary on the words of William Booth. So we're going to look at these statements, these six different statements. I'm not going to try to convince you that they're happening now because that to me is self-evident. As I tell you all the time, people are going to apostatize from the faith. That's in the scriptures. And I'll say this one more time. Maybe I'm already speaking what my theological position is. How do you fall away from some place you've never been? I can't fall off this roof if I'm not on it. But let others wrestle with that. I'm at peace with what the scriptures say. We're going to look at the words of William Booth. And I'm not going to try to convince you this is happening now. I'm just trying to try to supply with some scriptures and some thoughts to make sure in the end. As people fall away. It's not a question of if they'll fall away. As people fall away from the faith, one by one, here and there, you're not one of them. Booth said that what concerned him or what would concern the church long after his death would be religion without the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, Jesus said these words, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Keep that in mind. Whom the world cannot receive. I will give you the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. So this is before the Holy Spirit was given. The Holy Spirit's been given, so we're after this statement. Whom the world cannot receive. You're not in my business, so maybe you don't understand uh, how much thought I give to these things, but I don't quite get it how committees and churches can sit down again and again and again and again and move forward with good intentions, I'm sure, with good intentions, without prayer and the leading of God in the Holy Spirit. How do preachers stand up and give a clever message, and some of them are clever, Without the anointing of the Holy Spirit, without time spent in prayer, in meditation, to say, God, what is your word? What is your will? I want to let you know. I want to let you know. Last night when I was reviewing this in my mind, it caused me just a bit of unrest. And I actually said to myself, not to God, I, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I don't want to talk about these things anymore. But that's just like Jeremiah saying, I decided I wouldn't preach in his name anymore because it wasn't doing him any good. But he said, but when I made that decision, it was shut up in my bones. It was burning inside me, and I couldn't help but talk about it. Amen. And I find myself in that same position. There's many things I just don't want to talk about anymore, but I have to. I have to perform my duty. We now have religion, Christianity, without the Holy Spirit. 
We have Jesus' name on the churches, and we have scriptural sayings all over written on the walls, and we have a denominational sign in front of the church, and people flock in. But we have, by and large, a Christianity without the Holy Spirit. An old man, an old-timer, was once asked some years ago, what is the anointing? And he thought about it for a moment, and he says, well, I don't know what it is, but I know what it ain't. For me, when I hear God speaking through a man, it pierces me. And I recognize the voice of my master coming through another vessel. I say, man, give me, man or woman. I recognize the voice of my master. My sheep hear my voice. Now one may assume by conclusion that if people are flocking to a church that doesn't have the Holy Spirit, they don't have Jesus either. You say, oh, here we go, pastor. I mean, come on. They sing about him and they mention him. And the preacher, inside of his motivational speech about how great and that you have untapped potential and all of that, which, by the way, you do. I believe in some portions of human potential. Why? Because I see records getting broke. I see people being able to do things. I don't deny that. But I do say this. You can't get to heaven with that. You need Jesus. And in order to have Jesus, you need the Holy Spirit. As we'll see, and we'll repeat, or go over again, that you must be born again. And so the old man said, I don't know what it is, but I know what it ain't. Sometimes the anointing is hard to describe what it is, but you know when it's not there. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of listening to someone preach, especially if they preach long, like I do, and it's vexing. You don't know what they're saying. They don't seem to have consistency in the message, like being tormented. I've had the experience just occasionally to have to listen to something like that. And that is only one example of the so-called church without the Holy Spirit, without the anointing. Then there's the other end of it, when you have a very clever preacher, a charismatic individual, likable, kind, whatever, pastor of a local church, got a good reputation. He's even moral. But the Holy Spirit is simply not there. If you have the Holy Spirit, you already know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, it won't make a difference who you listen to, because it all sounds the same. I mentioned a couple of minutes ago my buddy who's gone on to be with the Lord. I'll never forget a message he preached in my church, our church, on a subject similar to this. I'm a pastor. I've already got many years under my belt. And as he was preaching, the longer he preached, it felt like someone had their hand on my chest and was pushing me up against the wall. So I said to myself, as I stood in the back of the church, I said, if I'm feeling this, I'm wondering what everybody else must be feeling. The sense of a pressure. It's the Holy Spirit. When will there come a time when the American church in particular, doesn't mean leave out the rest of the world, will be confronted with sin? It'll come when people get filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm not talking about the things some Pentecostal people try to pull off as the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about the real deal. To use my illustration, it'll be like someone has their hand on your chest and is just shoving you up against the wall and you can't move. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the difference between a motivational speech sprinkled with scriptures where God's hand is not on it. And the Holy Spirit speaking through, again, a person. Religion without the Holy Ghost. The African evangelist, he was German, but he was a missionary to Africa for many, many years, Reinhard Bonnke, said something very clever. He said, the less Holy Spirit we have, the more cake and coffee we need to keep the church going. Now, I don't think he was saying it's wrong to have cake and coffee in church. And it doesn't matter whatever he believed about that. We have it after our service. But our service is not drawing people with novelties. 
I learned this a long time ago as well, that whatever you do to draw people to the church, you have to keep on doing it to keep them coming back. I've never solicited any of you here or those that used to be with us or whoever, but one thing, I'll guarantee you that I'll be prepared to preach the Word of God. Amen. And if that's what you want, you're in the right place, but if that's not what you want, you are definitely in the wrong place. Because I'm not promising anything else. I never have. And with God's help, I never will. Amen. You could have the cake and coffee. It'll be ready for you after not only our message, but our prayer time. But we're not drawing people with novelties. We're trying to draw them with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Samuel Chadwick, the great Methodist preacher, once said, The Christian religion is hopeless without the Holy Ghost. And that, to me, would be self-evident. Number one, religion without the Holy Spirit. Booth said would be one of the greatest challenges. Secondly, he said that it would be a Christianity without Christ. But let me just digress for one more moment here on that first point. Religion without the Holy Ghost. Here are words from Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, born in the 15th century, the 16th century. He served under Henry VIII and Mary, who put him to death, Mary I. He wrote these words. There's a manifest problem, isn't there? When the spirit who is supposed to lead believers toward visible unity reveals such a plethora of divergent, if not mutually exclusive truths, that the end result is confusion and division. So either it is not all of God or the Holy Spirit is divided. But since Jesus can't be divided, it must follow that it is not all of God. So how do we sift divine thoughts and intentions from human thoughts and intentions? Remember, this is written hundreds of years ago. How do we ensure that we are listening to God and not just our own consciences, submitting to his will and not just serving our own agendas? Well, I'll give you the answer he may have supplied in his writing. It's right here in the book. The advantage that you have in my ministry is I always say to you, go home and read it. Well, I'm not coming here to tell you I'm the one the scriptures prophesied about. I'm not. My name is not mentioned in the book. No, this book. I didn't write it. But the only way that we can know and keep ourselves from this deception and the seductions that are there around us every single day is this book, is to know this book. And if you give up this book, you are primed for seduction and you are primed for deception. And you better have a theologian standing next to you to tell the Lord that he's wrong if he says, I don't know you. Denominations, I told you that there's so many reasons I could give that I wouldn't be a Christian. I'm only a Christian for one reason, Christ. That's it. So I read this here, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Baptist, Apostolic, Methodist. Uh, estimations show that there are more than 200 Christian denominations in the United States. That's quite a lot. But over 45,000 denominations globally. That's what Cranmer was dealing with hundreds of years before these statistics broke forth. Father, I pray that they may be one. Well, once again, I'm not going to South Korea, and I'm not going to a meeting held in New York to bring unity to the body of Christ from someone who says he's the prophet that God spoke about. In any case, it does raise the question as to how can this be all of God? When people say they don't need church meetings, listen to this wisdom. John Wesley said, there is nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. That's John Wesley. C.S. Lewis wrote, the New Testament does not envisage solitary religion. Some kind of regular assembly for worship and instruction is everywhere taken for granted in the epistles. C.S. Lewis. So we must be regular practicing members of the church. Billy Graham said this, churchgoers are like coals in a fire. When they cling together, they keep the flame glowing. When they separate, they die out. 
And we have that verse that I bring to you so frequently. The one I write to you every single week in an email. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That doesn't mean, well, I'm going to have a picnic. I mean, you may have a picnic. That's fine. But you put the church service first. Why? Because we all need to be reminded. That's my job. To instruct, to exhort, to remind you. That's why I'm here at work. This is my work. This is what I do. Now let's talk about Christianity without Christ. John chapter 15. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, he chasteneth, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now are ye clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. What's he talking about? He's not talking about good works. Anybody can do good works. It would be nice if people did more good works. Charitable things, kindness, many things that we can do without Christ. But we cannot be saved without him. We cannot bear the fruit of his spirit without his spirit being in us. And that is what the church is, wherever you go around the world. There's only really one church, 45,000 denominations. How do you choose? How do you know? Everybody's saying ours is the right one. Everybody's saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying that all I'm going to give you is the Bible as best I understand it. And that's the reason I left my two denominations, one I grew up in, the other one I just left in a huge protest. But I didn't sign on for anything other than Jesus. Amen. We're independent here, non-denominational, but we're Christians. And again, let me reiterate this. If you're looking to come to me with some novelty of how we can attract people, don't bother. So you're wasting not only your time, you're wasting mine. God, and this was my prayer this morning. God, you bring in as many such as should be saved. That's what it says in the second book of Acts. They built their whole lives on prayer and the word of God. The ministry, of course, of Jesus and healing the sick and other things. But it was Jesus. Jesus himself said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Not one of the 45,000 denominations or to these spurious, specious teachers, false prophets and false Christs. Look, at you have a false Christ, you have a false salvation. If you have a false Jesus, you have a false heaven and a false hope. If you have the real Jesus, you have a real hope and a real heaven. And you really have eternal life. It's amazing what the gospel can do. I spent seven years in prison ministry and saw great changes in people. Not everybody, but great changes in people. It is written, and I think this would be a debatable point, but there is a man who is written down in history as one of the most awful characters that's ever been here in New York State. Lived in the 19th century as well into the 20th century, I believe. Orville Gardner. He was a fighter. Someone said to me not that long ago, he said, I'm amazed. I didn't know that these fights go 12 or 15 rounds. <laughs> I said, 12 or 15 rounds? When boxing started out, they went hundreds of rounds. They fought until the one person could not physically get up off the ground. Look at the history of boxing. Fights went 33 rounds, 34 rounds, 38 rounds. They fought for hours. No gloves. Orville Gardner came up in that generation. And he was known as a real bad dude in many, many ways. He killed a man in a fight in the street, had to flee to Canada to avoid arrest and on and on. He was notoriously bad. 
During the course of his fighting and training fighters and hanging out with thugs and all these criminals and stuff, an unfortunate thing happened. He had a little boy that he loved and he died. This is a true story. A little boy that he loved died. He drank a lot. He was in a bar. He was drinking his whiskey. Went outside and the tears began to flow down his cheek as he lost his son and just wondered what happened. Where is he? He said, but immediately a thought came into my mind. And this was the thought. Wherever he is, you're never going to see him unless you change. Now, his mother was a praying woman, so he went to his mother. His mother led him to Christ, and he became one of the most notable preachers of his generation way back when. And he led many, many people to Christ, going into prisons, going to places he used to go to. I think I should add this, though. I really do. What's really a twist of this story, and it's the same of Horatio Spafford, who wrote It Is Well With My Soul. They both died in mental illness. This man here died in an insane asylum. The theory is that his past eventually caught up with him. I don't know. It's a bit confusing to me. The point is what the change that Christ can make in the most notorious individuals, let alone average people like you or me. And so we have Christianity without Christ. And again, I'm not trying to convince you of the obvious because you know it. But how many churches can you go to all over the place? And what you're getting is a motivational speech that's no different than when Steve Harvey talks about how he made it in television. But it has scripture verses sprinkled on it. And it seduces and it deceives because people say, we just got the Bible. And I said, no, you didn't get the Bible. You got a motivational speech with Bible verses sprinkled in. And you must know. I know the difference. You must know the difference. You must know when you hear the Bible being preached, that it's the Holy Spirit moving the book that he wrote through a person. Third is forgiveness without repentance. This is very popular in our age. Forgiveness, but you don't really have to make a change. Well, that's not what's said. It's kind of understood. You got to kind of sort of got to change. But the very first message that Jesus ever preached, his first message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, I explained to you in a message a week or so back. Repentance is just simply put, it's just a change of the mind. But it's not merely that simple. It's a change of the mind to line up your thinking with what the book says. And thank God that we have it. In fact, Thomas Cranmer that I mentioned, the archbishop, was one of the first to get the English Bible into the churches. People could read it. It's probably the reason that they burned him at the stake. Well, Mary did. Because that was forbidden. See, the devil's been at work in the church for a long, long time. Long before you and I were born. We've been in this condition of apostasy for a long, long time, so now we hardly even know what is normal Christianity. But I'll tell you one thing, if you want to know, just read the book. Start in Matthew, start in the New Testament, read Matthew, read Mark, read Luke, read John, Acts, go all the way through and read it again, and read it again, and you'll find out what Christ defined as Christianity, not anyone else. Forgiveness without repentance, Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Perishing is a whole lot worse than just having a bad life or a bad day. Perishing is a whole lot worse than just you're not a success or you're a loser. It means you enter into eternity, into the place that I'm going to talk about lastly. You enter into a place described by Jesus, for which there is no escape and there is no God. 
And it is so awful that even the Bible itself, I believe, cannot clearly elucidate how awful that place is. That's why he died on the cross. He died on the cross to keep us from going there. But it's based and predicated on repentance that we do what he says to do. And so it goes on to say this, Jesus went on to say this, of those 18, or those 18, upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, do you think that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. He's talking to the apostles. Of course apostles make heaven, that's a guarantee. Jesus said, no, it's not a guarantee. A title, a reverend, a doctor, pastor, an evangelist, the title doesn't mean anything. It's having the spirit of Christ inside you that means everything. Many people get more work done in ministry without a title than people with titles. And I'll tell you something else as well. What's more important than authority is influence. Ask yourself today, who's really influencing my thinking? When you go home and you let this book start to saturate your mind, that's the influence that you want. That's what you want to have. Because there is no forgiveness without repentance. We want to, I say we, people want to walk in the same way they're walking, realize that it's wrong before God, say, God, please forgive me, and still walk the same way. Jesus said no, John the Baptist said no, the apostles said no, and the Old Testament prophets likewise said no, you must repent. And people will notice the difference. People will notice the difference. Well, let's try on something here just for fun. What have you been in church all your life? And realize that I'm not really totally dedicated to Christ. And then you become dedicated. I will tell you that some of the greatest antagonism you're going to get is from the very people you went to church with. What do you think? You're holier than the rest of us? What do you think? You're better than all that. Because Satan doesn't pull any punches when it comes to diverting you from the truth of the word of God. And as advice, this is how I have always thought, and I have brought this up to you before, but I want to remind you of it. The way I think is not this way, going that way. I think of that and work my way backwards. In other words, I know I'm going to die. And I've always thought this way for decades. So I work my way backwards knowing that the ultimate in life is that I'm going to leave my body and land somewhere. I always keep that in mind so that anything that I do, hopefully, lines up with that goal. So instead of once again trying to go here to the end and to figure it out minutes before I'm taking my last breath. I've lived my whole life knowing I'm going to die and meet God and must give an account that the only way that I can be forgiven of my sins, which are many, is by repentance. It's by changing my mind, lining it up with the Word of God, changing my direction. Let me say something else. Do not make the mistake of thinking because you brought your children when they were younger to the Sunday school and they were taught and they heard and all this prayer was made and services and they remember the songs and all this. that that's a guarantee that they're going to make it to the kingdom. We don't control those things. That's why we must pray by name for our children, for our spouses, husbands, wives. For me, it's my own congregation. And I'm not suggesting you don't know Jesus. I'm just saying that that's how I pray. How am I to know who has the seal of God on them? There are indications, but I'm just simply trying to accent the point. Forgiveness of all sins that brings us to the place where Christ is a high priest, where we're going to see God face to face, obviously not based on our merits, but forgiveness through Christ after we've repented, after we've changed direction. And let me say one more thing on that subject. 
If you're concerned about what people are going to think, if you make the change, become fully committed, especially if you're already in a church, I would suggest to you that you don't become much concerned about what anybody thinks. Just follow Christ. Because when it comes to the end, they won't be there. Or they may be around your bed, perhaps, but they're not going to be there when you leave your body. You're not going to have some clever lawyer that can win the case for you. God will look you in the eye, or look me in the eye, and say, what did you do with your life? Thankfully, we are forgiven. We should be singing songs with more fervency than any other group of people who follows a band or a singer in the whole world because of what Christ has done. This is the very first thing that Jesus talked about when he began to preach. In an article titled, Whatever Happened to Repentance Preaching, David Wilkerson years ago wrote these words. In New York City, you can visit church after church from stately cathedrals to small congregations. and You'll seldom hear a word preached about repentance. The same is true of many evangelical churches across America and worldwide. You can visit congregation after congregation for months on end and never hear any mention of repentance. Of course, there are churches today that do not compromise on this important biblical doctrine, but a vast number of churches have decided that repentance is too offensive a message. In fact, entire denominations have de-emphasized it. In such churches, you could hear all about God's love, his blessings, his precepts for coping with life, but not a word about godly sorrow for sin. You can hear messages on loving others and being good, a kind person. All that is indeed scriptural, but you won't hear a repentance message like the one Peter preached at Pentecost. His sermon led thousands to freedom in Christ. Now, David Wilkerson has been dead for a few years now, but this has been going on for some time. There is no forgiveness without repentance. Repent, Jesus said. Jesus said. And believe the gospel. How about salvation? That means you're going to heaven. But there's no regeneration which the Bible talks about. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, You must be born again. And yet today... We don't hear these words as frequently as we should. Or if we do, being born again is separated from the other doctrines, such as once you're born again, you live and lead a different life. A vastly different life. It's not one of just being kind. It's not one like Orville Gardner's dramatic conversion. Yours may not have been so dramatic, but whether it's Orville Gardner or you or me, we bear the same fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. That's what the book says. We have the same Spirit. That's what we hear. Read, rather, in the Bible. Same Spirit. If the same Spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, same Spirit. Not a duplicate. It's not a copy. 
The same spirit that was in Jesus Christ must be in an individual for them to see God. That's Christianity as defined by Jesus. And I don't mean to be insulting when I say this to you, but whose definition would you prefer of what Christianity is? Jesus' definition? Or perhaps some bishop? Or some doctor? And so on. For me, I'll take Jesus' definition. There is no heaven without being born again. What does it mean to be born again? When Nicodemus didn't quite understand it, it seems others don't either. The Holy Spirit comes into a person. You've turned to God, repented. He gives the Holy Spirit. You're born again. You're saved. We slip, we slide, we fall, of course, but the direction is still this way. When we used to be going that way. And people notice. And they have things to say, as some of you already know. But again, I exhort you, don't be concerned what people say. Only be concerned with one person in the universe who's got something to say about your life, and that's God. Abraham was called the friend of God. If you're going to make friends, make a friend with God first. And keep it that way. We walk that way our whole life. And yeah, again, we sin, but his mercy endures forever. And it just keeps coming and coming. By the way, why is all this called good news? Well, I say, uh, Pastor, this don't sound like good news. I don't want to hear this. Well, there are plenty of churches that will accommodate and tell you what you want to hear. Well, just find them. They're out there. And I know people who have left churches like ours to find them. And I don't feel good about that. Don't think I'm rejoicing. Don't think I feel good or they're going to get what they deserve. I don't. It almost terrorizes me, but it won't go that far. It makes me feel sick to my gut. To know they're trading in the book, the Bible, and prayer, and what this book says for something that they want to hear. It's true. What I'm about to tell you is true. The glands in my ears, for whatever reason, produce some wax, and they itch occasionally at least, and I find myself often going like this. But my dog does the same thing as well. (laughs) The scripture is very clear that the time would come that they would go to teachers having itching ears. As we use the expression, that scratches me where I itch. If you're going to itch for something, itch for Jesus, the one found here. And keep in mind, Jesus' words That the way to God is narrow and few there be that find it. If that doesn't please you, please keep in mind, I didn't write that. There's nothing in the 31,102 verses of this book that has my signature on it says, well, I wrote that. I didn't. If I have a fault, it's this one. I actually believe the Bible. I've had people say to me, say, famous, well-known singer said that of me and then said it to me. He said, you really believe what you preach? I said, of course I believe what I preach. Well, how did he know? Because he told me, my wife was there, of all the preachers, you'd know them by name if I named them, I'm not going to. He said, I've been in their churches, I've been on their yachts, I've been in their mansions. This is what he told us many years ago. He says, I can tell you, they're all phonies. Now, I'm not going to name him, I'm not going to name the preachers. But he said, I told my wife tonight when I listened to you speak that I finally found a man of God. Now, I'm not trying to pay myself a compliment. I'm just trying to say one thing. All my life, I've just stuck with the book. It doesn't always work for me. It works against me the same way it works against you, but I know this much, comply. Because this is Jesus. And I'm not going to contradict him. I suggest you don't either. Politics without God. That's what Booth said would be one of the challenges for the church. That's interesting to me, because I think he was primarily speaking about England. But here we are in America, and we have this notion somehow that Jesus is political. I'm here to tell you he's not. Jesus is not political. 
Jesus is God come in the flesh. He talks about what is righteous. And if you are righteous, then you will vote for the candidate that comes closest to what is right. But to make Jesus a politician is tantamount in my mind near to blasphemy. Our American politics is devoid of God, largely, not exclusively. Look at, I could actually walk from here, go through that door that says, Pastor, study, pull off of my coffee table, which I rarely sit at, pull off a book and show you the title of the book, Tempting Faith, written by a Chinese-American who worked under one of the Republican administrations, go figure, where he was promised that once I'm in office, by a president, we'll make all these changes and help the Christian church out. You know how many were fulfilled? None, not one, not even one. And so he was disillusioned, greatly disillusioned, eventually quit and he wrote the book, Politics Without God. Yet on every piece of money that we have is our national motto that says, in God we trust. And yet politicians manipulate us, as they do other people, depending on what side they're on, for our votes. And my friends, let me tell you something. We're a bit stuck. You have to vote. Well, you don't have to vote, but you should be voting. And you should be voting for the candidate that best represents this gospel, which in my mind is not too promising at the moment. But there are some, sure. But I would submit to you that Booth was right in this area as well as the others. We have politics without God. There's a man by the name of Shadi, and I believe he pronounces his last name Hamid. He's a Muslim scholar, but he has something good to say here, so I'm going to quote him. In an article entitled, America Without God, Shadi Hamid wrote this. As religious faith has declined, ideological intensity has risen. Will the quest for secular redemption through politics doom the American idea? The United States has long been a holdout among Western democracies, uniquely and perhaps even suspiciously devout. From 1937 to 1998, church membership remained relatively constant, hovering at about 70%. Then something happened, he writes. Over the past two decades, that number has dropped to less than 50%. The sharpest record recorded decline in American history. Meanwhile, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, Atheists, agnostics, those claiming no religion have grown rapidly and today represent a quarter of the population. By the way, this man has a reputation of being one of the top 50 intellectuals of the world. But Muslim or not, it doesn't matter. What he's saying here is true. But if secularists hope that declining religiosity would make for more rational politics, drained of faith's inflaming passions, they're likely disappointed. As Christianity's hold in particular has weakened, ideological intensity and fragmentation has risen. American faith, it turns out, is as fervent as ever. It's just that what was once religious belief has now been channeled into political belief. It's a Muslim scholar. I'm quoting him because what he's saying is 100% true. Our faith is now in flesh, ideological. Vote for me and I'll set you free. The temptation is saying that when I was growing in grade school. Are we free? No, we're worse off now. George Washington, remember him? In the writings of Washington, he wrote, while we are zealously performing the duties of good citizens and soldiers, we certainly ought not to be inattentive to the higher duties of religion. To the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. We can go through many quotes, and I have in times past, of the founders and the early stages of America, 
And that includes Jefferson and Franklin. Franklin, a deist. Jefferson said he was a Christian, but of course we denied some major doctrines of the Bible. Franklin, in his old age, denied the divinity of Christ and some other things. He said, I'm hoping that I'll have time to study it more deeply. I don't know that he ever did. I've read his autobiography. He was very close friends with George Whitfield, and George Whitfield constantly told him about being born again. And they were very close friends. Who knows? So I'm not going to quote all of these quotes here. John Hancock, John Adams, and all the rest. Many of you have read them. But Saudi Hamid is right. We have now replaced God with political ideology. But be sure of this. The kingdom that's coming is Jesus' kingdom. His kingdom is coming. We see the signs, those of us that know it, when we read the book, when we read the Bible. Let me go on to this last point from the perspective called a prophecy of William Booth. Promising heaven without the knowledge of hell. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt, which means handicapped, into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. That's from Mark 9, 43 to 48. And if you're reading a version that's different from the one I'm reading, it's not in your Bible. Write me and I'll send you some links about that. Barna is a group that has statistical information about the church in America. And some time ago they wrote that Barna Associates shows that only 32% of adults see hell as an actual place of torment and suffering where people's souls go after death, fire, brimstone, or hell. Call it what you want, but no one wants to preach or talk about this taboo subject of hell, which is a big part of the Bible. No wonder those surveyed by Barna don't want to believe that hell exists. And the reason they don't want to believe it is because they don't hear about it. Some are not even aware that Jesus talked about it frequently. But think of it again as I've reminded you of this so many times. This cross makes no sense at all. Jesus dying on the cross for what? Well, to prove he loved us. There's a lot of ways to prove you love people better than being nailed to a Roman cross where you can't do anything except die. But as we take communion here each week, we are reminded every single week that the body given to be broken and the blood shed of death has given us life and there is no other entrance into heaven except by what Jesus said. Huh. I've asked preachers, preachers, not when was the last time they preached a message on hell. I asked the question, when's the last time you heard a message on hell? The response, almost always, not always, but almost always, is A, never, or B, they have to think for a minute. Well, I think once when I was a kid, this type of thing. The cross makes no sense. The life of Jesus makes no sense. The virgin birth makes no sense. Nothing makes any sense unless this place actually exists. And therefore, the word saved doesn't mean much. It doesn't mean anything. Well, save me from alcohol, you say, Jesus. Well, I know people that went to AA, and they don't profess Jesus, and they're off alcohol. Same with drugs. Same with sexual addiction. It can be done. But you can't be born again without the Spirit of God. Amen. And you must be born again, Jesus taught. Amen. You must. We read, we read the word perish. Obviously, everybody dies. We bury them and so on. But it's always, what's next? And Jesus tells us. And the scriptures tell us. 
Yes, there's a heaven. Thank God. But there's a hell. I have come to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus didn't say I came to give you a motivational speech of how you could play a better game of football. And I'm not against motivational speeches. Believe it or not, I like to listen to them occasionally. That's the truth. I just know it's not the gospel. And you should know so too. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And Jesus came to save us. William Claude Dukenfeld, very close to his death, in a hospital room at the time, was visited by a friend, and his friend was amazed because he was holding a Bible in his hand. Shocked, the friend of Dukenfeld said, why are you reading the Bible? His response was, I'm looking for loopholes. See, he understood what Jesus said. And you would know William Claude Dukenfeld better by his stage name, W.C. Fields. An avowed atheist. And if God does have an ironical sense of humor, because I've read his biography as well, W.C. Fields. He died on Christmas morning, still denying the existence of God. But at least in the days of Fields and many others, this doctrine was common to be heard in churches wherever you went. The fundamental doctrines which I gave you today, there's some of the fundamental doctrines anyway, were preached everywhere. Now we're finding a decreasing of this. My belief is that we're approaching the days of famine, similar to what we read in the Old Testament, of hearing the word of God, which oddly enough, oddly enough, for the last five, almost 600 years now, is written right here. And I said to you earlier, and I'm going to say to you again, you have a distinct advantage of having a pastor that tells you, go home and read it. I'm not saying, like, well, I'll leave his name out too. He's dead now. World-famous evangelist comes to a meeting, holds up a Bible like this. He says, I'm here to tell you, and he's talking about the anointing being all over him and all this stuff. And I'm here to tell you that there are some out there who preach that the work of Christ, you know, is going to get done through this book. It's not going to get done through this book. It's going to get done through me. I could name this man. You could, if you don't know him, you can look him up. But he was very famous. He's dead now. A friend of mine was there, and he was sitting on the dais. He says, now I want all you to put your Bibles away. My friend had one of his pocket ones, and he said, not me, brother. This is the word of God. Amen. Now, after that, you know, things didn't go so well. There was a heavyset woman from New York City who got up, and she said, I'm out of here. And he from the platform says, stop that woman. Well, that didn't go so good for the ushers. <laughs> she said, I'm out of here. You better get out of my way. Well, eventually they did. Folks, this is what we have today. And what I'm reciting happened like 30 years ago. From time to time, get a checkup, like you do with your primary care physician or your cardiologist, whoever you see, and read through the scriptures and ask yourself, because I do this a lot, God, am I lined up with your word? Am I paranoid? No. Am I a fearful person? No. Just the opposite. The more I've known God, the less fear I have, the less concerns I have. And the more boldness I'm gaining and courage, because those that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Beautiful, uh, beautiful, what's the word? Paradox. You fear the Lord, you downsize your fears to one. And he extends your life and sustains your life and anoints your life and anoints your brain. It's all good. I'll tell you what, if you think I got it wrong, email me. But I didn't. That's what it says. That's what Booth said and so on. Let's bow our hearts. Yes, we do thank you, God. We bless you. We praise you. In this church, God, as you know, 
We acknowledge you that you are still the healer of sickness and disease, still the Savior, and you're the same yesterday and today and forever. You've never changed. We bring today to you, God, our sicknesses and diseases. Oh, God, we bring to you all the things that interfere with the life that you give. Today, Lord, I pray that you would reach out your hand and touch those that are sick in body, those that are sick in mind with anxiety and depression and hearing voices. Oh, God, pour out your spirit for those who are dealing with demonic powers and don't know it. They don't even realize that what they're dealing with is demonic powers, seduction, deception. Pour out your spirit, oh God. Set your people free. Oh God, we just ask you today, help us. As I read earlier, that we should be consecrated to you in service. Help us to stay faithful to the end. Cause us, God, to believe you. We bless you and praise you, oh God. There's none greater, there's none higher. Teach us, Lord, as we mature in the faith. Not to love the world. And therefore become your enemy, as your book says on more than one occasion. But rather help us to love you with all the heart. All the soul, all of the mind, and all of the strength. And then, Lord, help us to truly love one another. Your book says put away hypocrisy. And I think we all understand what that means. Let that not be here. Let that not be a time for truth. I can't speak for other churches where pastors, other pastors are in charge. I can only say for here, God, let it be true that we are a church that loves you with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength and loves one another biblically so that we can be called spiritually Philadelphia, not Laodicea. Not a, not a compromised church with a compromised preacher. But rather, God, that we can be the Church of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Help us remember each other in prayer. And help us to believe that when we pray, we're going to get answers. As we have been seeing and have seen over the years. My prayer is that it would increase. That healing would become the norm. And uh, your hand of touching people would become something we just expect. Because our faith is increasing. Our faith is growing. Oh, we bless you today, O God. We praise your mighty name. You called us out of this crazy, chaotic, confused, sinful, perverted generation. Just help us, God. I do pray in my spirit, Lord, I do pray. We just don't have any pharisaical type of spirit here. Who's holier than the other one? Because that's an evidence of something you hated. You went out with William Booth and he said, go after sinners or go after the worst. Go after the worst. God, help us to be true to you, true to your word. Father, we bless you. We bless you that you have delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and gave us entrance into the kingdom of light. Give us strength. Give your people here today standing in front of me strength to walk with Christ. Like the song says, just a closer walk with thee. This morning, God, we give you all of the praise. Give you all of the glory. I'm looking forward to more testimonies, God, coming through the phone, text message, email. 
of what God has done in their lives, what good things. We just give you the praise, God. We give you the glory. Give you the honor. We say all that today in Jesus' name. Can you say amen with me today? Amen. Amen. Amen.